Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends with something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. everyone. Welcome back to episode two. I hope that you enjoyed my very first one on Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, the Ken and Barbie killers. Now, if you thought that was a crazy case, which it certainly is, I've got a doozy for you today. I've been doing a lot of research on this one. And in terms of just a hero's journey and all of the drama, this has it. So buckle up. This is the story of the Stainer brothers. On August 13, 1961, Carrie Anthony Stainer was born to Delbert and Kay in Merced, California. Merced is a small farming town in the Central Valley surrounded by almond groves and peach orchards. Back in the 60s and 70s, kids were always out and about playing in the park, riding their bikes, and skateboarding around town. The Stainers were of middle class. Delbert was a mechanic at a peach cannery, and he and Kay had five children together, with Carrie being the oldest. He had a younger brother named Stephen and three sisters. His parents, particularly his mother Kay, were described as distant and aloof, but a childhood family friend, Matt Cohn, recalls that the kids were always clean, fed, and provided for. As a kid and into his young adulthood, Kerry was described as well-liked but quiet and mischievous. You never really knew what he was thinking. He was also known to be very skilled at drawing and illustration. In high school, his caricatures and cartoons were regularly featured in the school newspaper as well as in the annual yearbook. One year, he was even voted most creative. He had dreams of one day becoming a professional cartoonist, and it seemed he had the talent for it. On the afternoon of December 4, 1972, when Carrie was 11, his younger brother, Stephen, who was seven years old at the time, was abducted while walking home from Charles Wright Elementary School on Yosemite Parkway. Stephen was approached by a man named Irvin Murphy, who was holding gospel tracts. Murphy asked if he or his mother would be interested in donating to his church. Stephen said that his mother might be interested, and his home was only a short distance away. And then at that moment, a white Buick pulled up with a nebbish man, and Murphy's colleague at the Yosemite Lounge was behind the wheel, and his name was Kenneth Parnell. By this time, he had already been convicted of impersonating a police officer and sodomizing a young boy in 1951. For this crime, he served four years in prison, so stand-up guy here. Luring Stephen into the car under the guise of getting that donation from his mother, the pair sped off onto Highway 140 instead. At one point, Kenneth made a stop and went to a payphone. When he returned, he told the frightened Stephen that he had just spoken to his parents, and they said that they didn't want him anymore. Kenneth also told him he would be adopting him as his own son. When Stephen didn't return home from school, there was great panic in the community, and it further deteriorated the Stainer family dynamic. Delbert became suicidally depressed, and Kay became even colder to the other children. Carrie harbored a great amount of guilt and felt that he should have been there to protect Stephen. And on top of these feelings, Carrie was exhibiting some disturbing behavior. He suffered from trichotillomania, which is a compulsive disorder that caused him to obsessively pull out his hair. 
He always wore a hat, and he told friends that he had early onset balding like his father, but in fact, it was because of the hair pulling. He also had a really hard time connecting with women. He was interested in them, but his friends always recalled that he never had a girlfriend. And according to magazine writer Sean Flynn, Carrie, quote, started acting wildly inappropriate towards females. He exposed himself to one of his sister's friends. After seven years without Stephen, many had lost hope of him ever returning, but on March 1, 1980, he shocked the community and resurfaced not only alive, but with five-year-old Timothy White in tow. According to Stephen in his first week of captivity, Parnell brought him to his room at the Yosemite Lodge where he worked, and he molested him that very first night. Despite his pleas to be returned home, Parnell kept him sedated with cough syrup and told him his new name was Dennis Gregory Parnell, retaining Stephen's original middle name as well as his real birthday. After 13 days in captivity, Parnell began to rape Stephen on the regular. The two eventually relocated to Compchi, a tiny town in Northern California which only boasted a small post office and a general store. And actually, as of 2010, Kamchi has a population of only 190. At the time, they lived in a remote ramshackle trailer tucked away amongst trees. Kenneth did have Stephen enrolled in school, and unfortunately, the school never asked for his records. Parnell drifted from menial job to menial job, which often required him to travel. This allowed Stephen to come and go as he pleased. Stephen also apparently used quite a bit of alcohol and drugs from an early age. He eventually attended the local high school where he played football and found a girlfriend. She recalls that one time as they walked home from school together, Stephen began to cry and said that he wanted to go home, to his real home. She found this confusing at the time, of course, but she didn't press him on it. She would later find out what he had meant. As Stephen got older and entered into puberty, Parnell decided it was time to abduct a new boy. He went to Ukiah, where he enlisted the help of a local high school student named Sean Poorman to help lure five-year-old Timothy White into his vehicle, much like he had done with Stephen. After two weeks of seeing the young boy struggle with a separation from his family, Stephen gained the courage to leave while Kenneth was at his security job. Timothy was too young to know where his home was, so Stephen decided to take them to a local police station. There, he told them of his harrowing ordeal. He was quoted as saying, I know my first name is Stephen, which would later become the title of a book and subsequent television miniseries about his story. Stephen was paid for consulting on the film and even played a bit part as a cop. Stephen, of course, became a local hero. When he returned home, his parents were ecstatic. There were over 300 people on their front lawn. The media and the community cheered him on. Everyone except his older brother, Carrie. During a press conference... Carrie is seen looking dour and unenthused in the background, and at one point he retreats away. Parnell was convicted of kidnapping and false imprisonment charges, but not for sexual assault, and I'm not entirely sure why. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, but only served five. Was justice served in this case? Not in my opinion. Stephen and Carrie both struggled as young adults for very different reasons. After high school, Carrie worked as a window installer at a glass company. And when Stephen had returned, the brothers did share a bedroom and butted heads frequently. Stephen really struggled to adapt to the household rules. As I said earlier, Parnell had, had basically let him come and go as he pleased. 
Stephen drifted also from one menial job to the other, and he used drugs and alcohol. But eventually, he did get married, and he had two children. He also was regularly giving lectures about his experience to young kids and telling them about the dangers of kidnapping. Sadly, though, at the age of 24, Stephen was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident. And Timothy White, who was at that time 14 years old, served as one of the pallbearers at his funeral. The two had stayed in touch and remained friends, Timothy forever grateful for Stephen rescuing him. Shortly after this time, Carrie's beloved Uncle Jerry was murdered. This sent him in a tailspin, and in 1991, he attempted suicide. In 1997, Carrie was arrested for possession of marijuana and methamphetamine, although the charges were eventually dropped. That same year, he was hired by the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portal. I think it's called El Portal. It might be El Portal. I think it's El Portal. But this was just outside the Highway 140 Arch Rock entrance to Yosemite National Park. He worked as a handyman and performed housekeeping duties, living in a small apartment on the top floor. Colleagues found him quiet but hardworking. This was an ideal move as Carrie would often escape to the park to sunbathe in the nude and smoke marijuana to relieve his inner turmoil. Yosemite National Park, California at that time was considered really safe, crime-free, and pristine. Its stunning features include 3,000 feet granite walls and a river running through and a variety of wildlife. It's considered one of the most beautiful places in the world and undoubtedly attracted tourists from around the globe. Three such tourists included 43-year-old Carol Sund, her 15-year-old daughter Julie, and a family friend and exchange student from Argentina, 16-year-old Silvina Peloso. Silvina had been visiting with the Sund family for three months. They'd already gone to Disneyland and had explored the sites of the Bay Area. Jens, who was Carol's husband, did not join the group as he was preparing for a business trip. The three had taken a trip to Yosemite in February of 1999 after having looked at University of the Pacific's cheerleading program in Stockton. Carol was a middle child of five, and her life's mission was to make the community better. She was a realtor along with her husband, but on the side, her passion was to advocate for abused children. Her young daughter, Julie, like her mom, was competitive and energetic. She was a talented cheerleader. After visiting the park, Carol's husband was surprised when they never showed at the San Francisco airport where he was supposed to pick them up on their way to the Grand Canyon as their next leg of the journey. Carol was really organized and punctual, so this came as a surprise to him as well as her parents. According to Time Magazine columnist Robert Howe, he did not find his wife at the airport and assumed she had flown ahead. She was not in Phoenix either, but he played a round of golf there the next day, and when she still had not attempted to contact it, contact him, he called the police. I don't know anyone that flies ahead like that and just wouldn't tell their spouse or whoever they're supposed to meet up with. That's just not something that happens. A little surprising that he played golf, but who knows. Anyway, initially there were concerns that the group had accidentally gone off-road in their rental car. It was winter and the winding roads of Yosemite National Park could be very treacherous. So naturally, a large search and rescue was mounted, which included Navy planes. Investigators were totally stumped, and the media attention was intense. Carol's father participated in the search. The three women had never checked out of their motel, and there was little forensic evidence in the room they'd stayed in at first glance. All investigators found were wet towels on the bathroom floor. 
By the end of February, Jen Sund offered a $250,000 reward for information that would lead to the return of the missing women. Carol's other daughter, 13-year-old Gina, read a poem during a vigil in Modesto. She said, quote, Deep in my heart, I know something my mind does not want to learn. I try to stay strong because I know that's what you'd want your baby to be, but mommy, I don't want you to leave me. God, that is absolutely heartbreaking. Sadly, in March, a hiker discovered their red 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix in Tulamide County. It had been burned almost beyond recognition. The tires were blown out, the paint and wheels had melted. They estimated that the temperature of the fire had reached 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In the trunk of the car, FBI discovered two skeletonized bodies, and through dental charts, they were identified as Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso. This grim discovery still gave them hope that Julie might be recovered alive. Around the burnt car, clothing had been strewn about and investigators located a camera. The developed film showed the three participating in tourist activities like ice skating. The film ended with images of the group in their motel room at the Cedar Lodge. Carol's father, who I said earlier had been helping with the search, had looked around in garbage cans in the Cedar Lodge area in the hopes of finding any types of clues. He said that a maintenance man continually peeked at him from around the corner. He did tell investigators, but they never followed up on that. The FBI and the Mariposa Sheriff's Department continued their desperate search for Julie, and they finally got a break when an unsigned, crudely drawn map was sent to the task force. It showed Lake Don Pedro Reservoir in the location of Julie's body with an X. Eerily, it said, quote, we had fun with this one. When Julie was found, it was determined that she had been deceased for more than a month, and though her, bod- her body was badly decomposed, it was evident that her throat had been cut. Many were questioned, including Carrie Stainer. Shortly thereafter, Carol's driver's license was found in Modesto in the possession of three parolees who were known meth users. They were rounded up and arrested after one of them had made some incriminating statements. And by mid-April, those that had been apprehended were ordered to testify in front of a grand jury in Fresno. But by the end of June, the FBI had reviewed the testimonies of and the evidence linked to the suspects in custody, and there were no charges yet, but they felt that they had those that were responsible for the killings behind bars. This put local residents at ease, among them 26-year-old Joey Armstrong. She was a naturalist and an instructor at Yosemite National Park. She lived in a cabin in the meadow of the Foresta community, which had housed park employees for many generations. Joey's mother, Leslie, described her as lighthearted and creative. She loved her work, and everything she did, she did so with a flair. Joey had emailed a friend that year saying, You should come see this place. I wonder if you ever will. I love my garden and living in Yosemite, one of the most beautiful places in the whole wide world. In July of 1999, police showed up at Leslie's door. They told her that Yosemite wanted her to call them. On the phone, she was told every parent's worst nightmare. Joey was missing. She was supposed to go to Sausalito in the Bay Area to visit friends, but she never showed. Her friend reported her missing. and When investigators went to her cabin, she was nowhere to be seen, but her truck contained many personal belongings, and it was evident that she had been loading it up. Unfortunately, her body was found in a creek nearby the cabin. Her mother asked if the body had red hair, and they said they'd get back to her. 
She found out via a newspaper that the body was that of her daughter, and worse yet, the headline read, Yosemite Naturalist Beheaded. Her head was found later. The community was terrified once again, and police suspected they had a serial killer in their midst. There was little to go on until they received another break. A fireworker had driven by Joey's cabin on the day she was abducted. He noticed a unique light blue International Scout SUV, and there were only two of these registered in the valley. The owner of one, Cedar Lodge's maintenance man, Carrie Stainer. FBI agents John Bowles and Jeff Rennick found Stainer staying at Laguna del Sol, which was a nudist resort in Wilton. He was arrested, and shortly thereafter, when they interviewed him, he said that in exchange for a confession, he wanted the reward money to go to his family and to be incarcerated in the prison being built near Merced. He also asked for videos of little girls. Of course, they couldn't promise him that, so another approach was needed. They spoke about Stephen, and Jeff told Carrie that he had experience with many child abduction cases, and he wanted to know what Carrie thought of how the police had handled it. Carrie felt that Parnell's sentence was unfair, and Jeff agreed. Frankly, so do I. But this appealed to Carrie's better nature. Carrie then said that he wanted to speak with Jeff alone. He said he was a bad person and did bad things. He also said that sometimes he thinks about world peace and other times he thinks he could kill everyone. He also shared his dark and twisted fantasies of harming women and girls. These started when he was as young as six or seven years old. He even recalled a fantasy of keeping a neighbor girl trapped in a bunker. Apparently, sexual deviancy wasn't uncommon in the Stainer family. When he was 11 years old, he was molested by his uncle, and I assume that this, this is the same uncle that was murdered. His father, Delbert, also had molested his own daughters. One of his sisters even recounts Carrie peeping on her and touching her inappropriate, inappropriately, videotaping her from under their beds. I believe there was also a female cousin that reported the same experience. Carrie told Rennick that on Valentine's Day of 1999, he planned to murder his girlfriend, a waitress at the Cedar Lodge, and her two young daughters so that he could molest the little girls. Fortunately for them, a groundskeeper present at the motel thwarted his plans. One of the girls named Lena was actually more recently interviewed by 2020. She referred to Stainer as a big teddy bear and that he appeared safe to her her mother and her younger sister. She was probably 10 or 11 at the time when they first, when her mother first started dating Carrie. He brought the girls drawings and beanie babies every time he visited. He also taught them how to dive in the motel pool. Now this is, this hits close to home because I was absolutely a beanie baby freak. I, every time I got allowance, I would go to the local drugstore and I'd get a beanie baby and some big league chew. So living my best life, but very creepy because if somebody brought me beanie babies every time, I would definitely consider them a teddy bear or somebody that could be trusted. Lena also recalled that he always carried a backpack, which authorities later described as his murder kit. It contained a gun, duct tape, and a knife. Lena said, quote, I remember seeing it in the truck. It was always with him like a woman carries a purse. Knowing that he had this kit inside of his backpack when he's around us at every time is terrifying to me, and it's almost like a slap in the face to know how close it came for us. It was very, very close. Over the next six hours, Carrie confessed to the murders. He told Rennick that even though his plan to murder Lena and her family didn't come to fruition, he didn't give up. 
The next day, on February 15th, he prowled the Cedar Lodge and told Rennick that around 5 p.m., he saw Carol, Julie, and Sylvina in their motel room through a crack in the blinds. He decided in that moment to act. Close your blinds, everyone. I mean, if that's all it takes, it's like close the damn blinds. He said in his confession, quote, As I walked, there was a red car in the 500 building all by itself. The window was open, the curtain was open, and I can see inside that there was two young women and the mother and no man. He had entered their room under the guise of checking out a leak and immediately strangled Carol. Then he sexually assaulted the teenagers and tried to get them to perform sex acts on each other. Frustrated by their unwillingness and his difficulty in maintaining erection, which seems to be a theme with these guys, he strangled Sylvina and loaded her and Carol's bodies into the trunk of their rental car. He wrapped Julie in a pink blanket nude and put her in the passenger seat and drove her to the reservoir. Laying next to her on the spread-out blanket, he told her that he loved her and was sorry that things had to be this way. As the sun rose, he murdered her. Then he marveled at the beauty of the sunrise over the reservoir. As with the sons in Peloso, Carrie had acted on impulse. In his taped confession, he had said about Armstrong, I was just over there throwing rocks in the creek and just happened to notice her walk out again and again. It seemed like she was alone. He told investigators that he had abducted Joey at gunpoint. She fought back, which sounds very much in line with her personality, and she jumped from the car's window. Unfortunately, she could not outrun Carrie, who caught up with her and slit her throat. Concluding the interview, he addressed the victim's families, saying, quote, I'm sorry, their loved, I'm sorry their loved ones were where they were when they were. I wish I could have controlled myself and not done what I did. He had fooled everyone. The community was stunned. Stainer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His defense attorney, Marsha Morrissey, claimed that the family's history of mental illness and sexual abuse contributed to his actions. During the trial, the two-hour confession tapes were played in court. Sylvina Peloso's father had to be removed at one point when he flew into a rage. Carrie wept and plugged his ears during his own graphic descriptions of the murders. He was found sane and convicted on four counts of first-degree murder by a jury in 2001. In 2002, during the penalty phase, he was sentenced to death for Carol, Julie, and Sylvina's murders and to life in prison for the murder of Joey. He is currently incarcerated on death row at San Quentin Penitentiary in California. I definitely don't have any sympathy for Carrie, but I think that his shows of remorse, which strike me as authentic, are indications that he was sane. I mean, he knew right from wrong. Also, the whole argument that due to his family's mental illness and the sexual abuse, I mean, while it's harrowing, it does not it does not make you a murderer, right? So there's a lot of people that are troubled with the same types of issues but never go out there and end up murdering and raping young children. So absolutely, I think it was the right sentencing and justice was served in that case. Now, if this story was not sad enough for you, here's another interesting but tragic twist. So Timothy White later became a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputy in 2005. The year before, Parnell was tried for human trafficking and attempting to kidnap another child, which is another indicator that his sentencing for Stephen was not long enough. 
And he obviously never reformed his behavior and I don't think was able to. That was not even a possibility. But Timothy testified at that trial and much like Stephen, he also spent time giving lectures to children about his experience and the dangers of kidnapping. But at the age of 36, he died of a pulmonary embolism. It's so sad that the good ones in this story, Stephen and Timothy, had short lives. I mean, Stephen wasn't perfect, but he did his best, I think. I mean, and also you have to consider how difficult it must have been for him to re-enter society, especially when Parnell gave him free reign and he had no restrictions, no boundaries. So his wife remembers him fondly. He's got, you know, he had the two young children and he worked for a living. So I think that's pretty good, all things considered. And then Timothy, of course, again, he managed to give back to the community by giving lectures as well to young kids and was part of law enforcement. And he just dropped dead at a super young age. He also, I believe, was married with two children. A statue was erected in Ukiah where Timothy was abducted, as well as in Merced and Applegate Park. That's very famous to this day. It's a, a image essentially of Stephen and Timothy escaping hand in hand. Meanwhile, you've got Carrie Stainer, who is still alive, and then Kenneth Parnell lived to the age of 76. And if you want to, I don't know that you would, but his mugshots are disgusting. I mean, this guy was a total creep and exactly what you would imagine a child molester to look like. And quite frankly, I hope he's in hell. Now, for something beautiful that came from this horrible case was that in 2000, the Carol Sund Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation was established. And this is to, quote, provide resources to families to offer rewards for information to help law enforcement officials locate missing and loved ones and to bring violent criminals to justice. It was dissolved in 2009. I believe her parents just decided to stop offering ward money. I'm not really sure why, but they shifted their assets to the Lacey and Connor Search and Rescue Fund, and that is in reference to Lacey and Connor Peterson, um, which is a very, very, very famous case that I'm sure I'll cover at some point. Yosemite National Institute put together a program called Armstrong Scholars in Joey's Honor. According to the website, Quote, the Armstrong Scholars Program seeks to inspire young women to reach their highest potential, develop a stronger sense of self, and explore their personal connection to nature during a 12-day backpacking adventure in Yosemite's High Sierra. Participants venture into the backcountry with highly skilled female educators for an expedition of discovery, leadership, and personal challenge. This program is inspired by and in memory of former Nature Bridge environmental science educator Joey Armstrong. Now that is my jam. I love that. Everything about that is amazing. I did look at their website and unfortunately that was canceled due to COVID because F COVID and, you know, get rid of it. But I do think that that's an amazing tribute to this woman who sounded absolutely incredible. And if you look at a picture of her, she's just this beautiful, red-haired, vivacious-looking woman. So may she rest in peace as long as well as the others. Now, in terms of something beautiful from a product standpoint, I wanted to share with you this awesome, awesome hair mask by Amika, which has honestly become one of my favorite, most prominently used hair brands. 
they have this mask called the soul food nourishing mask and it deeply conditions and hydrates hair they use this ingredient called sea buckthorn berry and it's also known as oblifica i prefer sea buckthorn berry but it is included in all of their products it smells unreal and it contains a lot of active compounds including vitamin c a and e Um, there's also some uh, the rare omega-7, which makes up 40% of the berry, but this is typically only found in fish oil, and it basically keeps free radicals at bay and promotes the production of collagen, which is a key building block for skin, hair, and nails. Also, another cute thing about Amica is that it means friend in the language Esperanto, which I think was like at, at one point a universal language that never took off, but it's a nice, it's a nice thought, um, and it's a symbol of their belief in the power of community. They're also a a Brooklyn-based brand, so, you know, that's a nice thing too. But basically, I use it maybe once or twice a week. And even though I have fine hair, obviously a a little goes a long way, but I do think it's really helpful as a nice deep conditioner. So highly recommend that. And again, pretty much all Amica products, I'm I'm a huge fan. They're also vegan and safe for color-treated hair, so very good for me. right listeners thank you so much for spending some time with me again to discuss the crazy crazy case of carrie stainer and stephen stainer i hope you enjoyed it and i hope that you will tune in next time to follow crime and beauty visit us on instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast on facebook at crime and beauty podcast or at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com Please rate and review on whatever platform you're using and feel free to shoot me an email at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay beautiful.